Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Tonight we're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 20 and 21. 20 and 21. Let's go ahead and ask God to bless the teaching of his word tonight. We thank you, Father, for uh, bringing us together. For those who are here, those maybe listening on WLGS radio, those watching through social media or a video stream, or maybe, Lord, they're watching at a later time. We pray, Father, that you would just help us to continue to grow in your grace and the knowledge of your word. Help us, Lord, to gain understanding through uh, these accounts that we read about here in the book of Numbers. I pray, Father, that the things that the children of Israel went through, some good and some bad, there were lessons learned, Lord, sometimes the hard way. And we are much like the children of Israel. Sometimes we need to learn lessons the hard way when you have such a better plan for our lives. So I ask, Lord, that you would just help us to be attentive to your word tonight. Help us to glean from it truths that we can apply to our own lives in the day and age that we live. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here in Numbers chapter 20, I titled uh, this chapter, Speak to the Rock, as once again we find the children of Israel complaining against Moses and Aaron, and ultimately they're complaining against God when they do this. But this time God has Moses not strike the rock, but tells Moses in a key verse for us in verse 8, take the rod, you and your brother, Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus, you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So chapter 20 marks year number 40 for the children of Israel. It had been 40 years, or they're in that 40th year since their deliverance from Egypt, and they've been roaming around in the wilderness for 38 years because of their refusal to enter into the promised land when God first had them there at Kadesh Barnea. And they sent in the 12 spies, and the 10 of the 12 spies uh, came back and said, There's, you know, it's beautiful, it's everything God said, but this. Cities are big, the walls are high, the people are well-armed, and we cannot take the land. And so they refused to enter the promised land, and God punished them by that generation, everyone from 20 years old and up, dying in the wilderness. We come to chapter 20, and most of that generation has died. And this is really marking not only the 40th year, but... Also, it means that the children of the second generation that came out of Egypt, they're preparing to enter into the promised land. But here we learn in Numbers 20, and also we'll see it in Numbers 21, that 
they were much like their parents. And once again, we find the children of Israel complaining in this chapter against Moses, against Aaron, ultimately against God. Well, that's what their parents did. So they didn't learn much about the punishment that their parents went through. They watched it. They mourned the depth of their loved ones there in the wilderness. And yet they're just like mom and dad, just like their uncles and aunts. And they didn't have the courage to enter in. And yet God is still preparing the second generation to go into the land. But also Numbers 20 marks the end of that first generation with the death of Miriam and also that of Aaron toward the end of the chapter and beginning with the death of Miriam. Both Moses' sister and brother will pass away during this time and largely because of their disobedience that they had. They challenged Moses, if you recall, and his position and thought that Moses was taking on too much responsibility for himself. It's what the Korah and his 250 leaders that challenged Moses and Aaron did. And now we find also that Aaron and Miriam had done that. And it cost them not only uh, judgment of God. God didn't judge Aaron because he was the high priest. But Miriam would be leprous for seven days because of her disobedience. But I also believe it was a dying out of that generation. And we read about this in chapter 20, verse 1, the children of Israel, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. So they're there in the wilderness of Zen. Kadesh is mentioned here, and earlier on it was described as the wilderness of Sin with an S, now spelt with a Z, believed to be the very same area, just different spelling. But uh, both mentioning Kadesh. And I think this is significant because God brought them back to the place of their parents' disobedience. And really, to me, I see a test in this. And sometimes God will often bring us to that place of disobedience, bring us back to those places of decision to see if we're going to trust his guidance or not. Now, Miriam, she was significant in the account of Moses's life. If you remember when Moses was born, it was at a time when Pharaoh was saying all male babies should be cast into the Nile. He was to be put to death. But after three months of trying to hide him and probably not having a lot of success with a crying baby, mom built a little ark, covered it with pitch, and cast him in the Nile, just had him in a boat that he wouldn't drown. And Miriam watched to see what would become of him. Of course, God had the little ark float over to where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing and heard the crying baby and her heart went out to him in compassion. And Miriam was right there and asked, should I call one of the Hebrew nursemaids to nurse her until he is winged and then we'll bring him back to you. And so mom got to nurse her own son. Some believe 
to be about the age of three years old when Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and named him Moses, Exodus 2.10, because I drew him out of the water. Eighty years later, Miriam is leading the women of Israel after their deliverance from Egypt in song. She's called the prophetess. And she sang this song in Exodus 15.21, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. But Miriam and Aaron came against Moses because he had married an Ethiopian and it aroused the anger of the Lord who reprimanded them and caused Miriam, as I said, to become leprosous for a period of seven days. And now for the next 38 years, they were in the wilderness with the people. But that first generation of people are dying off. And so will the leadership. A new generation of leaders would also rise up to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. First Miriam is the first to die of that old leadership of the core of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But for us, I think sometimes the Lord, he will bring us to that place of failure. Maybe it is the failure of our parents to see if we're going to reduplicate what our parents did. I remember I was sitting with one of my son's friends in Hawaii. I think we were at dinner together with them. And they were a young couple who had just gotten married. And um, this boy had been raised in a family with his mom and dad, but mom and dad never married. They didn't think that marriage was necessary. So I asked him, if that's how you were raised, what made you want to get married? Well, he said it seemed like it was the right thing to do. He could have went on and said, well, mom and dad didn't get married, so why should we get married? Israel could have said, mom and dad didn't go into the promised land. Why should we go into the promised land? But God will often bring us to a point Maybe it's our parents' failure. Maybe it's our own failure. But bring us to that place of decision. They're back in Kadesh. And here comes the challenge, verses 2 through 13. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here. Now, this sounds just like mom and dad. This is exactly what they had said for 40 years. This is actually in the Bible when you add it all up, the seventh recorded time that the children of Israel complained against Moses, Aaron, and the Lord. Verse 5, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces. It's always good when we are challenged with things in this life to fall down in worship before the Lord, to bring those things to the Lord. They fell on their faces. And humility, instead of arguing with the people, 
Let's go see what God has to say about this. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So the rod from before the Lord, Aaron's rod that budded, that was in the tabernacle of the Lord. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand, struck the rock twice with his rod, The water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord. He was hallowed among them. So once again, the people are without sufficient water for themselves and their animals. They cry out to Moses and Aaron for the seventh recorded time. They're complaining, they're griping again. Yet this time, God doesn't seem upset with Israel, but is compassionate toward them. He instructs Moses and Aaron to take the rod from before the tabernacle. They're in the tabernacle, they rod of Aaron that uh, budded to gather the congregation together at the rock and to speak to the rock that it would yield forth his water. But Moses and Aaron did all that the Lord commanded. But when it came time to speak to the rock, Moses thought, I'm tired of this. Seven times they have complained to me and I've led them around this wilderness for 40 years and I'm tired of this. So he he complains. He actually yells at them. God didn't want Moses. He didn't command Moses to yell at the people. But Moses felt it was necessary to yell at them. And then he took the rod and he struck the rock twice. And again, God never commanded Moses to strike the rock. That's what Moses had done the first time they came to the rock. They struck the rock once and water flowed forth. But it was not necessary any longer to strike the rock for the water to flow forth. All he needed to do was to speak to the rock. And even though Moses misrepresented God before the people, God graciously allowed the water to flow from the rock. But because Moses and Aaron did not wholly obey God's command, He would not allow them to enter into the promised land. There's a couple of things that we notice. First, Moses and Aaron, they represented the law of God before the people. And the law can never bring us into the promised possession. The law never brings us into the promised possession. Paul would write in Galatians that the law was the tutor to bring us to Christ. It's necessary that salvation comes through faith in Christ. Christ alone, but the law can't do that for us. We need a savior. For Israel, at first it was Moses. 
and then Joshua. But for us today, his name is Jesus. Second, Moses and Aaron, they misrepresented God before the people, causing the people to think that God was angry with them. And it really ruined this beautiful typology that God was wanting to present before the people. If you recall, in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, when they were in the wilderness of sin, this time spelt with the S, they struck the rock and water came out of the rock that the people could drink. This time God only asked Moses to speak to the rock to cause the water to flow. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that they all drank of the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So Paul puts a connection to Jesus Christ in this account of both Exodus 17 and here in Exodus 20. And that connection is significant for us today because we realize that Jesus was struck once for the sins of the world as he hung upon the cross. And when he was struck and as he gave up his life, the waters of salvation began to flow. He never needs to be struck again. All we need to do is speak to the rock, Jesus Christ, that that water of salvation might flow toward us. And in faith, the water does flow into our hearts. Have you spoken to the rock, Jesus Christ, that the water of salvation might flow toward you? So we next come to verses 14 through 21 and Edom refuses Israel passage through their land. Remember, the children of Israel, when they came out, they numbered the men. And this is the book of Numbers. And we're going to have another numbering of the children of Israel before they enter into the promised land. And in reality, from the first numbering that began in the first few chapters of the book of Numbers and the latter numbering, numbering the first generation and the second generation, the numbers remained about the same, about 600,000 men plus women and children. So you had somewhere between 2 million or maybe up to 3 million people. And I can understand why Edom might want to refuse to have somebody pass through their land when they're numbering some 2 to 3 million And so the word says, beginning in verse 14, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us. How our fathers went down to Egypt. We dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are at Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left when we pass through your territory. Then Edom said to him, verse 18, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. 
So the children of Israel said to him. So there's this sense of communication being sent back and forth between Moses and the king of Edom. Verse 19, so the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway. If I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Only let us pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through their territory. So Israel turned away from him. So Israel, he, if you've seen in the introduction, as Moses said to the king of Edom, thus says your brother Israel, they had a common heritage as their forefather through Isaac and Rebekah, their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Israel came from Jacob's line and Esau came the line of Edom. They had a common heritage of not only Isaac, but also Abraham. That's why he said, we are your brother. And you know what happened to us and how we were in Egypt and how God has delivered us. Now let us pass through the land. We promise we'll only go by the highway and we won't turn to the right or the left. And even if we drink some of your water, we'll pay for what we drink. Yet Edom threatened them with war, ultimately came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Therefore Israel turned away from Edom. God didn't command them to go and to take and to destroy Edom. That war, though, would come, and it would be kind of a lasting war between Israel and Edom for many years to come. In the days of David, in 2 Samuel 8.14, It tells us that David would put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So their refusal now would cost them in the future, cost their future generations uh, suffering at the hands of Israel. But this was not the time for war with Edom. That would come later. Because Edom would always remain aggressive toward Israel. The chapter closes out with Aaron passing away. Now the children of Israel, verse 22, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh. They came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor and the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I gave to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the waters of Meribah. And Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them up to Mount Hor, strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor and in the sight of all the congregation, Moses stripped Aaron and his, of his garments, put them on Eliezer, his son. So Eliezer becoming the high priest. Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Aaron, Eliezer came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days. So Aaron's death came as a result of 
Moses and Aaron not wholly following the command of the Lord there at Kadesh, there at the rock where Moses struck the rock, where he yelled at the people. And it must have been hard for Moses to strip the holy garments off of Aaron, his brother, but also it must have been a joy to pass those on to Aaron's son, Eliezer, the second generation ready to take over. But judgment and death comes. Well, Hebrews 9:27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this to judgment. Death will come in this life. But if we can live in such a way that we can pass on, as Aaron did with Eliezer, pass on the work, the ministry, to his son, or sons in Aaron's case. As we know, that Aaron, two of his sons, had misrepresented God before the people with strange fire, and they were killed some uh, 38 years plus earlier. But now Eliezer becomes the high priest. What a wonderful thing for Aaron to see before he went on from this life. I also like it that it's a common thing in the Old Testament, but that Aaron was gathered to his people. It speaks about this life after this life, eternal life, and that there is our people, those, our loved ones that are in Christ today and have died in Christ, we will be with them once again. But only Moses' death remained to really mark the end of this rebellious generation. There could be a few others still alive, and we'll see in the next chapter that there will be others who will die because of a plague that God sends out upon them. I'm not sure if God was just finishing off that first generation or teaching the second generation a lesson as well. But ultimately, the only person necessary at this point would be Moses. Of all that first generation who came out, only for sure Moses, Joshua, and Caleb remained, with Joshua and Caleb being able to enter into the promised land. So we have here in chapter 20, the people are brought back to Kadesh. It's the next generation. It's the children of those who have been delivered out of Egypt. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness, but God is getting the next generation ready. And by one, Miriam dying and now Aaron dying, and a new high priest has been presented before the children of Israel, Eliezer. We get to chapter 21. We find that war breaks out once again. Chapter 21 the children of Israel are on the move again. And they follow the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory, that cloud that was over the tabernacle, a cloud by day, fire by night. And there in the wilderness, there are attacks from the enemy, but not just from without. The attack comes from within as well. And so that's why it's always good to be on guard. There would be three battles spoken about in this chapter, three wars from enemies outside of Israel. But there's also sandwiched between these battles is a battle from within the nation of Israel. So we begin in verses 1 through 3. And the king of 
Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharam. And he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. So the Lord listened to the voice of Israel, delivered up the Canaanites, and utterly destroyed them and their cities. The name of that place was called Hormah. So first, Israel was attacked by the king of Irad, a Canaanite, and so begins the battle for the promised land. If you recall, and well, we haven't quite got there, but um, I was looking around and there is a list of the countries of the people groups that Israel was to utterly destroy when they entered into the promised land. God had told Abraham some 600 years before that there would be a time when the children of Israel would go to a country, they'd go down to Egypt, spend 400 years there, then I'll bring them out by a mighty hand. But he said that the uh, deeds of the Amorites had not yet come to the full. The iniquities of the Amorites that God gave them from Abraham's day over 600 years, a time of repentance. But now judgment will come. And oftentimes there are six countries mentioned, but in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, the Lord mentioned seven. And these are the ones that was stuck in my head. The Canaanites are part of that list. So the Lord, your God, brings you into the land which you are going to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. So the Canaanites are the first to do battle against Israel here. Their chief god was known as El. Of course, we're familiar with that if you're accustomed to the Old Testament Hebrew because El was a common name for God. Uh, Elohim is another way that God is translated. Uh, Elohim from the Hebrew translated into God in our scripture. But El was the chief god of the Canaanites and his mistress or wife, that of Asherah, According to their legends, they had some 70 other deities. So the Lord of the gods, and he put in charge Baal, one of the chief gods over the Canaanites, a god of fertility and that of the storm. And so the Canaanites, very different from the Hebrew religion, religion as the Hebrews were to worship the one and the true God, the Canaanites worshiped many different gods. It was basically a fertility cult at the temples that were scattered throughout their land. Again, Israel would have one place of worship, the tabernacle or the temple. But there in Canaan, many temples scattered throughout their land. Um, They participated in lewd acts of worship, even having temple prostitutes. They were a depraved people, very debased people, and God was bringing judgment against them through the children of Israel. And so they came out 
against Israel and God gave them victory over the Canaanites here in this battle. There would, they're not by no means finished with the Canaanites. There would be many more battles with the Canaanites. But at this point, Israel is getting a taste for war and really learning war. I think one of the things that our nation is failing at is that no longer, and don't get me wrong, I don't want my grandsons to have to go to war, but I also think we're raising a generation of young men that they're not trained up, they're not ready, they're not strong for such things. But Israel was getting a taste of battle, and they were gaining strength, learning to use a sword, a spear, a bow to be strong for war, but also being part of the judgment of God against this nation. And we're going to read a lot more about these wars as we continue on in Numbers and then Deuteronomy into Judges all, all the way through Joshua and First and Second Kings. A lot of war to come. So that was a war from without. Now a war from within. Verses 4 through 9. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This would be complaint number 8. For there is no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So they're saying we're sick of the manna. That's the worthless bread that they're talking about. They've been eating it, and I could probably understand a bit of that. When we lived in uh, California, when I was going to the school of ministry out there at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, I was a janitor on the grounds, and um, it was actually Pastor John Randall's dad, Jim. So Pastor John Randall, he's on our radio station at 7 a.m. every morning. His dad, Jim, was a butcher, and Jim would tithe to the church by bringing ground beef, ground pork, meat. And he actually, I believe he was giving it to the school because they had a high school and grade school there and they fed the kids there. But they didn't use that meat for feeding the kids. They bought their meat from somewhere else. And so the janitors got dibs. We only made six fifty an hour. So the janitors got dibs at the free meat. So I would bring home 10 pounds of ground beef. It always came in a 10-pound bag. And uh, ground pork and ground beef, and ground pork and ground beef. So much so that I, I got tired of the smell of the ground beef. It just, for a while, it took me, I like hamburgers now, but it, I got burned out on eating for two years. So thankful for it. It was a good provision. It was needed but I understand we're tired of this bread. For them, it had been 40 years. And um, it took me a while to get back into eating ground beef again because we'd had so much of it that I didn't even like the smell of it for a while. So I kind of understand where they're at. So maybe I'm, I would be with them complaining. 
I don't want this ground beef, even though it's feeding my family and taking care of us. So no food, no water. Verse 5, I loathe our souls, loathe this worthless bread. Verse 6, the Lord sent a fiery serpents upon the people. I'm glad God didn't do that to me with the hamburger meat. They bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. So again, is this just like finishing off that first generation? Or is this the second generation getting a taste of the judgment that their parents received? Well, the scripture is silent kind of on that, but we know that we're into that second generation by this time. So there could be a few more that needed to die off. In verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when they looked at it, the bronze serpent, he lived. I was thinking about that as I was reading that. They kept this bronze serpent. I wish I would have looked it up earlier, but it became actually a sin to them in future generations because it became a a serpent of worship to them. That is later. But right now, the bronze serpent becomes a symbol of life. If only they would look at the bronze serpent. So Israel had just been victorious over the Canaanites. Soon they would be battling against Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the Og, the king of Bashan. But first, there was a battle from the enemy from within. They complained against Moses. The same old complaints. No food, no water. And then they add this time, we're sick of the manna. And they were repeating the same sins of their parents. And this time, God sends poisonous snakes out to bite the people and the people are dying and the people come and plead with Moses to pray to the Lord to stop this death that come upon their camp. And the Lord told Moses to do this rather strange thing, to make a bronze serpent. If you recall, bronze always speaks about judgment. The metal bronze in the Bible speaks about judgment. Bronze Uh, the altar of sacrifice that was outside the temple proper or the tabernacle proper. It was in the courtyard of the tabernacle or temple, but that was made of bronze. And the priests where they washed, that was made of bronze. Always speaking of judgment, he made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, And those who were bitten, all they had to do is look to the serpent that they might be healed. And I've often imagined people refusing to look. They're sick, they're dying, and they're thinking, there's no way, this can't heal me. I'm not going to look. And maybe there's even other people around them looking, and they're just like, oh, I'm healed, I'm all better. It's the same with people today. Because the bronze serpent becomes a wonderful picture of the salvation of Jesus Christ. First, 
bronze, this symbol of judgment. And Jesus taking the judgment of our sins upon the cross. He has died there upon the cross because all humanity has been bitten by the serpent, Satan. And because of that, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And rather than take away our inherent sin nature, God gave a remedy through his son, Jesus Christ, placing him on a cross. He bore our sins. And all we need to do now is to look to Jesus that we might be saved. And those who look to Jesus in life-saving faith, they are healed. They find forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. And yet there are those who refuse to look. That's nonsense. I can't believe that. So they refuse to look and they never find that salvation. I hope you have looked to Jesus today. Jesus even referred to this in John 3, 14 and 15 saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus made the connection with the bronze serpent that through looking a look of faith, someone can be saved. But you got to look to Jesus in order to be saved. Well, as they're moving toward the promised land, we get this urgency. They're, they're in the 40th year. And, uh, Time is kind of running out before they enter into the promised land. For Moses, he has a lot to do yet. He has a lot to do to prepare the next generation before they go into the promised land. But here in this section in verses 10 through 20, we get this sense of urgency. And I'm going to read through a list of these number number of campsites, nine of them all together mentioned here. And uh, probably hack some of the names, but here we go. And the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth. And their journey from Oboth, and they camped at Lygi, Abram, and the wilderness that is east of Moab toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zidred. From there they moved and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnine is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. And this really helps set us up for what's coming with the war between uh, the Amorites coming right after this. So they're in that general area. Verse 14, Therefore it is said, In the book of wars of the Lord... Wahib of Sufa and the brook of Arnon and the slopes of the brook reaches into the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. I'll have something to say about that strange little saying in a moment. Verse 16, from there they went to Beer and from the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I'll give them water. And Israel sang this song, spring up, O well. All you who sing to it, and the well of the leaders sunk, dug by the nation's noble, by the lawgiver with their staffs. 
so dug by the nation's nobles, the leaders over Israel, but by the lawgiver, that to me speaks of Moses, that they dug the well with their staffs. From the wilderness, they went up from Matanah, from Matanah to Nahali, Nahali to Bamoth, making a circle there, and from Bamoth to the valley of the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. So I love that nine places are quickly mentioned for us. So we get this sense of urgency. They're on the move. They're making their way to the promised land. They're in the 40th year. They're going to be entering into the promised land very soon. And the people are there close with the Amorites and Moab. Yet before they would take one step into the promised land, there were still battles that needed to be waged. So the book of the war of the Lord is a reference to the book of Jazer. The book of Jazer is an extra biblical account that is actually mentioned by name in Joshua 10:13 and 2 Samuel 1:17. I've read the book of Jazer and it is an interesting read, but also it speaks about um, like half humans and half donkeys, uh, creatures that uh, are more in mythology than what you find in the Bible. But it is interesting that it is referenced in the Bible. And so you can gain a broader view uh, when reading about the 12 sons of Israel or of Jacob when they were doing battle, which we never really read about them, doing war or battle except for uh, two of the sons of, of Levi and Simeon who waged war there against uh, in Shechem and they killed all the males there. So we never really never read of them doing war, but in the book of Jazer, it's as if they had superhuman strength talking about the brothers fighting and leaping on top of the walls. And um, much like you might see, I just watched a, a Japanese uh, karate movie recently and they're kind of like leaping and floating in the air, doing impossible things that no one could possibly do. But the book of Jazer, they could do it there. It's just that they had superhuman strength. So an interesting book, interesting read. Um, I enjoyed reading through it, but I'll probably never read it again because I don't want it to kind of warp my biblical thinking and get things mixed up in there. But some interesting things, the book of Jazer. So that's being referenced here with that saying. That saying itself is believed to refer to the Wahib of Shufa, referring to what it's meant, a town in a stream. And so about a forgotten town that uh, among the many maybe um, suggestions to the meaning of this, it is believed to have been a forgotten town that is named here 
that would have meant something to them, but today it doesn't have a lot of meaning for us. But second, the quote of spring up a well, apparently they sunk a well by the nobles and maybe even Moses, the lawgiver, digging with their staff, staffs, bringing provision for the people. But here in chapters 10 through 20, there was that sense of urgency. Israel is on the move. They're moving from camp to camp to camp. And then war comes. Verses 21 through 32, Sion, the king of the Amorites. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, the king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all of his people together, went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, took possession of his land from Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the people of Ammon. And the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all the land from his hand as far as Arnon. Therefore, those who speak this proverb, this is the proverb picking up in verse 27, come to Heshbon, let us build. Let the city of Sion be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sion, and consumed air of Moab and the lords of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! Moab, you have perished, O people of Cheshmon, or Cheshmash. He has given his sons as fugitive and his daughters into captivity to Sion, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon, and they lay waste as far as Nophah, which is in Media, Mediba. So Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent spies to spy out Jazer. And they took its villages and drove the Amorites who were there. So technically, this is not part of the promised land. But this is where, um, and we get in the next section as well, where two and a half tribes would claim their inheritance. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and a half tribe of Manasseh. They would also take the king, as we close out verses 33 through 35, King Og of Bashan. So they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. So King Og of Bashan came out against them, he and all of his people, to battle at Edrai. And the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. I have delivered him into your hand with all of his people in his land. You shall do to him as you did to Zion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons and all of his people, until there was no survivor left in him. And they took possession of his land. So unlike the people of Edom, who actually had a common heritage with Israel through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, the Amorites and the people of Bashan had no common heritage. They were actually on that list 
of the seven nations that were to be judged by God. And God's judgment came by way of the nation of Israel. And these battles, though, gave Israel experience in warfare and also learned to trust in the Lord God and his hand of deliverance as they would need that trust for years to come. For this was a major conflict in such a sense that Sion would be mentioned another 36 times in the Bible and Og 22 times in all. And so Israel will keep coming back to these two battles. Even in Psalm 135 verses 10 through 12, it says he defeated many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And all the land he gave as an inheritance to Israel, his people. And so this is a significant two battles, as we close out chapter 21, that will be referred to many times for the children of Israel. And yet the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh would choose their inheritance here in the land. I just want to speak about this as we close out, before we close out. They choose their inheritance outside of the promised land proper. They would, their men of war would cross over and they would help their brothers take possession of the promised land. But when the battles were finished, they would go back over to this land that they had already conquered as their inheritance. And though they strived to stay close to the Lord, they knew as soon as they crossed back into their inheritance, which was outside of the promised land proper, they built a mock altar, not to worship any God there, not to offer any sacrifice upon there, but to be a reminder for their people that they too belong to the children of Israel, that they too are to worship at the tabernacle. But once they got on the other side of the river, they began to drift away and eventually they would be some of the first nations to fall away from the Lord. The word of God tells us that we are to draw near with true hearts of full assurance of faith, that our hearts should be sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Hebrews 10.22. And sadly, Today we see less people drawing near to Jesus in these last days. According to Fox News, a third of Americans have quit church attendance since the pandemic. And so this is Fox News. The title of the article is, A third of Americans have quit church as attendance falls to recover pre-pandemic numbers. A long title, but that's the title. In that article are a few paragraphs that I pulled out. A recent study examining the effects of COVID-19 lockdown on church attendance in the U.S. has revealed the pandemic resulted in an overall depression of religion, religious participation as approximately a third of Americas have stopped attending religious services. The study titled Faith After the pandemic, how COVID-19 changed American religion, was conducted by the Survey of American Life with American Enterprise Institute 
It also found that young adults ages 18 to 29 showed the greatest drop-off in religion attendance of all age groups. The survey found that in the spring of 2022, 33% of Americans reported that they never attend religious services compared to 25% before the pandemic. Around 30% of young adults are attending religious services less often now, but only 12% are more active. By comparison, 75% of seniors are attending religious services as frequently as before the pandemic, while 16% attend less frequent, frequently and 9% are more involved. So some people are the same as, same as it was before, some a little less for the older people, some are more involved, uh, those who realize the time that we're living in, but really the youth, 18 to 29 years old, the biggest drop off. The study predicted that if the number of Christians under 30 continue to abandon their faith, it will accelerate that the fall off of the historical dominant religion in the United States, Christianity, could become a minority by 2045. 2045, not too many years from now. So the tribes of Reuben and Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, they were content to settle just outside of the promised land. And even though the first generation of Israelis who lived in these lands strived to stay near to the Lord, their separation from the other tribes, as well as the temple, eventually caused later generations to fall away from their faith. It seems that the same thing is happening here in the United States today, as happened with Reuben and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, as many of our children have left the faith and are no longer walking, no longer willing to stay near. That is a danger and one that only Christ can actually resolve. And so, Father, tonight we just want to ask that you would send forth the spirit of revival into our land. A lot has changed, and there's a lot of people who are just without hope right now in our nation and throughout the world, and a lot of reason for not having hope. But we always can find hope in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us Help us not only stand strong in our faith, but to grow in our faith, to increase our love for you and our service for you as well. And we do pray, Lord, for that lost generation, the 18 to 29-year-olds, that, Lord, you do a great work of salvation in their generation, like you did for the Calvary Chapel movement and the teenagers back in the 60s and 70s, May we see a repeat of that today. Lord, only you can truly save. May we look to you as Israel had to look to the bronze serpent if they were bitten, that they might live. Lord, we have been bitten by the serpent of sin. And only through looking through to you, Jesus, might we truly find salvation. Help us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and stand up.
This coming Sunday, we're going to be in Lesson 40 of our Chronological Gospels. Been going through uh, the four Gospels, kind of taking bits and pieces and trying to take a chronological journey through the Gospels all of last year and into this year as well. So Lesson 40 coming up, but this week we're going to finish out and be picking up in verse 21, I believe, of Matthew chapter 10. So we're going to concentrate on the remainder of Matthew chapter 10 this week. So if you want to read up, you can do so. And uh, I think that's about it. So I pray that God would bless you, that he would keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.